We're on a mission from God. This is the St. Longinus' Baptism Podcast, Episode 7, Part 2, a continuation of the Naked Cross or the Heirs of Protestantism. First a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. Grant me grace, O merciful God, to desire ardently all that is pleasing to thee, to examine it prudently, to acknowledge it truthfully, and to accomplish it perfectly for the praise and glory of your name. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Amen. So when I left off in the first part, I left off on the two types of sacrifice that uh, Catholicism teaches. The first... The first, uh, the first sacrifice was the sacrifice of mass. Basically a recreation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. The second sacrifice was the sacrifice that Catholic believers make. One, because they don't want to go to hell, but two... As I said in the previous episode, because hopefully they'll grow in faith enough that they'll want to amend their lives and to please Jesus as best as they can by making sacrifices in their personal life that they would not otherwise make. Now, the third part that Sola Fide um, the sola fide or justification by faith alone also um, destroys is the sacraments. There are seven sacraments in the Catholic Church. These are not really germane to this episode. Uh, what I would suggest, though, is if you're interested in finding out what those sacraments are, Googling... Um, the seven sacraments of the traditional Catholic Church. I, I fear that if you Google the seven, sacri- uh, seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, you're going to get the Vatican II uh, lies and falsehoods. They basically are a Catholic front for a Protestant heresy. Um, so... The seven sacraments at the Council of Vatican II, they basically destroyed, um, they basically destroyed um, the seven sacraments. They Protestantized them. Um, And this is the logical conclusion to the evil fallacy the Protestant theology teaches. And another fallacy is, is that priests serve at the pleasure of their congregation. This is biblically and historically what I call bullcrap. In the New Testament, 
It speaks of bishops, priests, deacons, invested with spiritual powers, not given to the average believer at large, but transmitted by an external sign, by the imposition of hands, thus creating a separate order known as the hierarchy. For the historical fact is, is that every Catholic clergy from the apostles um, can trace their lineage. In other words, Bishop A was consecrated by Bishop B, etc., etc., etc. They should be able to trace their lineage back to one of the first 12 apostles. This is what is known as an apostolic succession. I'm going to repeat that. Apostolic succession. Basically, the, the Protestant uh, quote-unquote reformers got rid of apostolic succession basically because they started their churches in the 1500s whereas the Catholic Church had existed for 1,500 years before their revolt from the Catholic Church. So obviously, they could not trace their lineage back. Now, as far as the Anglicans go, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, issue with... Uh, because... Because when basically King Henry took over the Catholic Church in England, those bishops and priests had been legitimately ordained by legitimate Catholic bishops. The problem was, was when they joined the Church of England, they severed their ties to the Catholic Church, thus making their, um, their ordinations invalid. I don't want to get into that whole theology, but basically that's the crux of the issue as far as the Anglicans are concerned. And the reason apostolic succession is so important, I'm going to try to make this as brief as I can. Jesus had his 12 disciples. Okay? And... Before the Great Commission, remember that, that, that section in Matthew where he said, go and baptize the entire world in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. He had given them the same powers that he had to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to perform miracles, basically. And he gave these to his apostles as a sign that they were working for him, okay? And obviously, since these guys weren't immortal, they had to uh, pass on their, their authority to their successors and so on and so on and so forth, okay? None of the, the Protestant pastors or priests or whatever they were calling themselves can trace that back, their lineage, back to the first apostles. So that's why apostolic succession is so important, because it's proving 
that the Catholic hierarchy goes back all the way to the time of Jesus before his ascension. Now, the idea of private judgment, in other words, you judge for yourself what you'll believe and what you won't believe and what you think the Bible says, it basically negates creeds and confessions and uh, councils. It, it negates them into personal opinions. And I'll give a perfect example of that. Remember in my last episode, I talked about the Catholic doctrine of trans, transubstantiation. Basically, that when the priest makes the blessing over the Eucharist and wine, he turns it into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, which helps keep you close to Jesus and, and helps you to remain faithful to him. Well, the Protestant reformers basically said, no, we don't agree with that. We don't agree with that. Um, we think it's just bread and wine. We don't think that the, the mass as a sacrifice, we believe that what we do is the Lord's, what they call the Lord's Supper, which is basically not a sacrifice. It's a communal meal amongst believers and it totally cuts out the whole sacrificial part of Christ's uh, sacrifice at Calvary. It's just a bunch of Lutherans or Anglicans or Calvinists getting together, sharing bread and wine and saying, oh yeah, isn't Jesus great without you know, honoring his sacrifice that was made for their redemption? Um, now the principles of Protestantism, um, Bible only and faith alone flatters the pride. In other words, if you can determine what you will believe and what you won't believe, you know, because you think that you're inspired by the Holy Ghost basically flatters your pride. It's telling you, oh, you're a special dude, bro. You know, you can decide for yourself what Jesus meant in this passage of Scripture or what you'll believe and what you won't believe out of the New Testament. Now, obviously, if you're free to choose what you will believe and what you won't believe, um, this makes a hash out of the New Testament. Um, I remember back in like the 2000s, uh, Protestants were freaking out about the Episcopalians, uh, consecrating a gay bishop. <laughs> and by the way, that's died. That's died. They're no longer mad. They're just kind of like, eh, whatever. But I remember thinking at the time that if you believe in faith alone, how are you going to criticize the Episcopalians for doing this? Because basically, they're following the, the tenets of Protestantism. They interpreted the Bible 
on the inspiration of what they think is the Holy Ghost to say to be a gay bishop is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. He could still be a bishop. And then they use their faith alone to say, well, since this is our interpretation of what the Bible says, um, you know, we, we have no issue with a gay bishop. And I just want to ask you Protestants a question in all sincerity. If you believe in sola scriptura or Bible alone or faith alone, how are you going to get mad at the Episcopalians when, they, when they're basically following that formula? Now, the Catholic Church, and no, I'm not talking about that Vatican II abortion that masquerades as the Catholic Church, but the true Catholic Church does teach that homosexuality is the sin of Sodom, which cries out to heaven for vengeance. So yes, they, well, like I said, the Vatican II sect has consecrated gay clergy, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Personally, I think it's knowingly, but that doesn't matter. Because like I said, they're heretical. But the true Catholic Church would never tolerate a gay, an openly gay bishop. Now, if a true Catholic bishop was being a homosexual in private, if as long as it remained private, in other words, if the Catholics, the true Catholics at large, did not know what he was doing behind his closed bedroom door, that's between him and God. But I guarantee you, if he does not, if that bishop does not confess to his confessor, and yes, bishops and even the Pope, True popes, I should say, they have confessors. They, you know, even the true pope himself has to confess his sins. So if that if that gay bishop does not confess that he's been banging the altar boys in his bedroom, then he's going to have some issues when he goes to God for judgment. And it also deceives the ignorant. Um, I found in Protestantism a lot of ignorance. Now this, I'm, I'm not picking on Protestants. I found a lot of ignorance among the Vatican II sect and even amongst true Catholics, there's a lot of ignorance. But if, if you're, if you're, um, If you're deceiving the ignorant, whether knowingly or unknowingly, this is not this is not a workable faith. God uh, Jesus said in his gospels, "You will worship me in spirit and in truth." I repeat, spirit and in truth. And if your interpretation of the truth is not Jesus' truth, even though you're honestly passing on what you believe to be his truth, you're, you're passing on an error. Therefore, it is not a workable faith by Jesus' own teaching. 
And God forbid, and I literally mean this, if you're intentionally deceiving your followers who don't know better, if you're intentionally deceiving them, you're going to have to answer to Jesus himself when you come for your personal judgment. Now, as far as private private interpretation or private faith goes, I want to point out that every anthropologist and, um, you know, every anthropologist will tell you that you are formed by your family, i.e. genetics, or the way you were raised, or what class your family was, whether wealthy, middle class, or working class. The society you were born into, its norms, its, its culture, its uh, taboos, its truths, and the time you live in. So... A middle-class white girl born in uh, 2015 is not going to have the same outlook as a working-class Irish Catholic in the 1890s who's not going to have the same outlook of a Protestant deist of the 1700s who's not going to have the same outlook as the Catholic peasant of the 1300s. Okay? So, in order to have what I call infallible faith, your truth, your faith, must be the same. It must be the same. It cannot variate. And this is also mentioned in the New Testament. If your truth of the 1200s is not the same as the truth in the uh, 2020s, then it's not God's truth because God is unchangeable. He's unchangeable. It says that in the Old Testament. It probably says it in the New Testament. He is unchangeable. He does not change. So... If you're teaching, you know, if your faith taught in the 1200s that um, homosexuality is wrong and you're teaching in the 2020s that, no, nah, it's a matter of personal preference. You're cool. Do what you want. That's not the truth. And that makes your faith subjective, not objective. And here's the thing. Um... You know, I remember back in around 2010, 2012, there was a big kerfuffle in the Vatican II sect and just just in political commentary that, oh my goodness, we're, uh, we have cultural relativism and we need to fight this. My point was, well... If you have a religious theology that basically has perverted, for lack of a better term, the culture and the theology at large that says, well, just 
live your faith however you want to. It doesn't matter. Can you really expect that the cultural relativism is not going to infect your society or your culture? Think about that. You know, this isn't a new phenomena. This started with the Protestant Reformation. Now we are living in the era of cultural relativism where my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. You know, and and the fact that it infects, you know, um, media and entertainment and politics should come as no surprise. And speaking of cultural relativism, I just want to throw in this extra point. Back when Bill Clinton was president and he had the Monica Lewinsky kerfuffle, I remember arguing with people. They were saying, ah, it's just sex. It's just sex. The Republicans are sex starved. That's why they're interested. If you you read up on that particular period of history, the Republican Party did not impeach him because he had a oral sex in the Oval Office. They impeached him because he committed perjury. Now, I want you to think very carefully about this. If you, Joe Blow, in a court of law, lie under oath, you're going to prison for a very long time and you're going to meet a bunch of unpleasant individuals who are going to make your life a living hell. Now, in my understanding of the way American system of government is supposed to work, the president is supposed to be held to the same standards, if not higher than, you know, Joe service worker making 10 bucks an hour. And... The, the the irony that really insulted my intelligence, at the same time this was happening, all the soccer moms were losing their wigs because there was a picture in the newspapers of Michael Jordan in a casino after a game spending his own money. Now, I think it's a sad commentary on society, when we hold, you know, um, entertainers and athletes to a higher standard of morality than we do our own elected officials. But, you know, we live in cultural relativism, so, you know, you can think what you want, I guess. Anyway, so there are many factors that factor into your private judgment. There's a famous saying that a fish in water doesn't know it's in water. In other words, the currents that propel society or a society, you don't know you know, what these currents are. You're just a product of those currents. In other words, if you're a peasant in Europe in the 1300s, you know, depending on which area of Europe you live into, live in, 
your outlook is going to be the outlook of Catholicism, your local liege lord, um, you know, whoever your priest, whoever's in your village, and who your parents were and what what class of society you were raised in. So that's going to be different, though. Like I said, then uh, a teenage girl in America in 2015, you know, their outlooks are going to be completely different, but they're going to be unaware of the, of the undercurrents of the influences that are affecting their judgment. Okay. So. If you're using your own private judgment instead of an objective source of judgment, let's say Catholic teachings for the past uh, 2,900 years, uh, I'm sorry, 1,900 years, um, you know, your private judgment is not is going to be subjective. It's going to be whatever influences you. It's not going to be a universal truth. Now, the, the founders of Protestantism were hypocrites. There's no other way to put it. Because they revolted from the Catholic Church to have the freedom to start their own churches, but would not grant that privilege to the people living in the territories that they were living in. And I'll give you a perfect example. Martin Luther. Now, when Martin Luther publicly defied the Pope, he was excommunicated. And like it or not, in that era, if you publicly flouted the Catholic Church, you were heretic and you were subject to the death penalty. Now, you had to go before a tribunal and they decided, but once he broke with the Catholic Church... He basically put a bounty on his head to any Catholic uh, prince or duke or lord who decided to take the law into their own hands and kill him for his heresy. Um, you know, they might have to face some some uh, issues with the hierarchy overtaking the law into their own hands and not turning it over to the proper church authorities because he was a priest. Yes, guys, he was a priest. But basically, he had a price on his head and he knew what that price was. So, you know, Martin Luther was many things. A stupid man was not one of them. He might have been impetuous. He might have uh, he might have had hasty judgment, but he was not stupid. So as soon as he was excommunicated by the Catholic Church, what he did was was he went to his local prince and he asked the prince, "Hey, you know, um, can you protect me? You know, will you be my protector?" And that particular prince in his territory wanted to break with the Catholic Church. And he also was not a stupid man. He realized if he could have a, 
a new religion in his territory that he no longer had to pay the taxes or answer to the Catholic Church. So he was more than happy to take Martin Luther in. As a matter of fact, they hid him in a castle in, in, in the deepest part of this, of this prince's territory where any ca- vengeful Catholic uh, dukes or lords could not get at him. And he was there for at least a couple of years, laying low and working on his quote-unquote theology. Well, once, once the, uh, the Council of Worms made it legal for Protestantism to remain in the states where it was, Martin Luther basically was the Pope of his own, of, of the territory that he took refuge in because he had the backing of his prince. Now, like I said, the reformers were, were hypocrites because just to make the point, you know, by this, by the time of the Council of Worms, his theology had spread all over Europe. And there were people living in his prince's territory who took his theology to heart. One of those sects were the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists were saying, hey, we have freedom of faith. We have freedom to interpret the Bible. We disagree with you, Martin Luther. We think we should be able to practice our religion our way. Now, Martin Luther went to his protector and he said, you know, uh, these Anabaptists are probably going to cause you trouble because, you know, they're practicing a different faith than the one, you know, that I teach. And maybe you should do something about that. And the prince, being an obliging fellow, did. He basically massacred the Anabaptists. It's historical fact. And then, not only did he do that, but then the, 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 the German peasants had a revolt. But they made a mistake. Now, being, you know, just ignorant peasants, they didn't realize it was a mistake because they were taking Martin Luther at his word. They had a two-pronged strategy or it wasn't really a strategy, but a two-pronged complaint. The first thing they said was they were like the Anabaptists. They told Martin Luther, hey, you said we have freedom of faith and freedom to read the Bible as we want to. You know, so we we don't agree with your teachings. We want to form our own churches. Well, Martin Luther couldn't take that. You know, he was the Pope. So he, you know, how dare you challenge his authority? And then the prince, because there was a second grievance the peasants had. They were mad at that particular prince because his his underlings, his nobles and his barons and stuff were going into peasant villages, basically exact, uh, exacting high taxes, um putting to death any peasant who dared resist, 
raping any woman who caught their eye, and all sorts of sundry atrocities. Well, the prince, he saw this, and I'm going to tell you, no leader, unless they're God uh, they, they have God as their ultimate leader, is going to put up with a bunch of rabble refusing their authority. So he did what any good despot would do, and he sent his soldiers in to put down the revolt, which they did so with utter brutality. And not, not to make this the bash Martin Luther hour, um, John Calvin in Geneva formed a virtual dictatorship over that town, and I think it was the surrounding canton in Switzerland, where to deviate at all from his teachings was, a, was a, almost certainly a death sentence, unless you were lucky and, I should say, blessed enough to escape his tyrannical rule. So basically... You know, these guys broke with the Catholic Church because they wanted those freedoms, but they wouldn't give them to the people that were in their domain. And another thing, we always hear about the brutality of the Catholic Church. I've, I've done my share of reading about Catholic history. I am unaware of any any um, bishop allowing his, the prince that was in his territory, allowing them free reign to have a reign of terror whenever they felt like it. I am unaware of that. Now, am I saying that Catholics haven't committed their shared atrocities? No, I'm not. Um, but those atrocities were committed by individual Catholics, not Catholics led by the hierarchy. You know, I'm sorry. It's a matter of historical fact. No, no um, Catholic prelate, bishop, and above ever told the Catholic populace Oh, yeah, uh, take out those nasty heretics, you know, it's your duty. Individual Catholics did, but not with the approval of the church itself. And since these quote-unquote reformers had sold their souls to their local princes, well, you know, uh, there's a saying in America that says you took the man's dollar, meaning, you know, if you if you took somebody's money or their protection, you got to do what they say. Otherwise, suffer the consequences. And so after after their territories were basically, you know, uh, safe these princes started because, you know, guys like Luther and Calvin, they owed their safety to the princes. And the princes, you know, being, you know, being, uh, having read their Machiavelli, they said, well, 
you know, hey, we gave you protection. Now you got to do us a turn. And, you know, you got to start making your church rules to suit our needs. And if you don't, we're going to make it hot for you. Meaning that, you know, if if Calvin and Luther and the rest of the reformers didn't toe the line, they were going to get the same treatment that the Anabaptists and the uh, peasants got. So, and by the way, this isn't a new phenomena, but when Luther started his revolt against the Catholic Church, it became more widespread, okay, that the princes started interfering in church matters. Um, one of the reasons for the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox schism of uh, 1093 happening was because the, uh, the Eastern Roman emperors were basically dictating to the patriarchs in, of Eastern Catholicism what they could teach and what they couldn't teach, and, you know, and uh, basically the patriarchs became puppets of the emperors. Now, in Catholicism, there were, there were uh, two sides to Catholic society. There was the church, and then there was the king, or the state, or I'm sorry, the king, or the emperor, or the princes and barons of their territories. Now, the Catholic Church basically gave the rulers of their particular little areas free reign to run it how they wanted to, as long as they didn't uh, blatantly break church laws. Okay? The church authorities would not step in as long as the whatever leaders were in their territories were following church law and weren't being blatantly, you know, like her uh, sinful, you know, raping women and burning villages and stuff like that. Um, then there was the church side. The church side was the Pope was in charge of the church his bishops were his deputies. They determined church teaching and church, church doctrine. And the, the local leaders, you know, the princes, the emperors, what have you, they were not allowed to, 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 to flout the Catholic church, church's teachings. Now, anybody who's familiar with church history knows that there were emperors and kings and barons and stuff who did try to change church, church teachings, who tried to um, neuter the Catholic Church's um, influence on their realm. Now, there were some weak popes, but there were also very strong popes. And the strong popes usually would take these rebels uh, these rebellious leaders and whip them like puppies who wet the carpet. They, 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 they showed them who was boss. The only king that I'm aware of, and, you know, I don't claim to be a genius, but the one king I know who got away with 
defying a pope. And in reality, he didn't really defy him, but basically there was a French king named Philip the Fair, or Philip the Fourth, rather. Well, Philip the Fair was his nickname, but he was known as Philip the Fourth. And I think this happened in the 1100s or the 1200s. Basically, he wanted to do something, and I don't remember what the particular issue was. But basically, the Pope told him, no, you can't do this. This, is, this goes against church law. You cannot do this. So Philip the Fair marched his troops into Rome and took the Pope prisoner. While the Pope was being held prisoner, Philip the Fair sent his legate, basically his, uh, his representative, and that legate told the Pope, hey, you need to change this ruling. And the Pope refused. And so the legate smacked the Pope. And at the time, you have to understand the context. At that time, the Pope was considered Christ's legitimate prince on earth. He only answered to Jesus. And so for a secular prince to mistreat a Pope this way was scandalous. Now, I'm sure in France, you know, Philip IV probably did everything he could to downplay what had happened but the rumor mill back then works like the rumor mill does today no matter how hard you try to keep a secret the rumor mill will get you okay so in my in my uh reading of history Protestantism has led to all the ills of present, present day society free thinking which I call liberalism because that's basically what free thinking is it's saying you lead your life you do what you want to do and as long as you don't bother nobody you're good to go nobody can tell you how to live or how to think that's liberalism. Rationalism, modernism, Nazism, communism, socialism, etc., etc., all have their roots in the Protestant revolt. I have said many times online that basically the Protestant revolt gave birth to all the isms that we're suffering from today. Um, a further hypocrisy of Protestantism is that most of its sects reject Catholic creeds, confessions, and councils. Okay, most, most Protestant sects, they, they don't have a creed, they don't have a confession, and they definitely don't have councils. And the original, original Protestant reformers 
they formed their own creeds, confessionals, and councils and imposed them on their followers wherever they had, you know, wherever they were the state church. Because that's what happens when you go to a prince for protection. You become the state church and you will allow no dissent outside of your territory to your theology. Well, I just want to ask, what about, what about private judgment? What about if everyone can interpret scripture their own way? Why, why aren't they allowed to do that? I thought that's what the uh, quote-unquote reformers wanted to do. When I was a Protestant, I used to have com uh, conversations with my Protestant uncle who was one, uh, of the uh, sect of once saved, always saved. I can make the Bible do whatever I want or say whatever I want. And basically what that means is, is um, you know, if you can interpret the Bible by your own private judgment, then you could commit any atrocity or commit any cynical move and, you know, pick a verse out of the Bible and say, well, it's in the Bible. My interpretation says it means this. You know, when I said that, I wasn't being cynical and saying, um, you know, that I would cynically use the Bible to justify my evil actions. But I was implying that other people claiming to be Protestants would cynically justify their private interpretation of Scripture to justify their evil actions. Another problem with Bible alone is it turns the Bible into an idol and renders and renders into infallible interpreters. I'm sorry, I messed that up. I can barely read my notes. Um, baby, basically, it turns the Bible into an idol because you have no higher authority than the Bible. Okay, you don't, you don't, you don't have a teaching authority. You don't have a quote unquote pope and his bishops to to, to tell you what you should believe what the scriptures say. You don't have any of that. Okay, so... Um, basically, you know, it's... I liken it to the German pagans of pre-Christianity, you know, or the Roman pagans for that matter. You know, they were worshiping fire and... They had war gods and tree gods and the god of uh, merchants. And I mean, there were more gods than you could shake a stick at. And basically, let's take an example. Let's say you have a German chieftain who worships the war god. So he goes to the local priest and he says, well, I'm going into battle tomorrow with 10,000 guys but my opponent has 50,000 guys, what does the God of War say? And basically, um, the priest would 
cut up an animal and study the entrails and tell them based on his interpretation, you know, because he thinks his God is telling him these things, whether or not the chieftain would be successful in battle or not. I mean, it does sound a lot like, you know, private interpretation of the Bible. And ask yourself this question. On what authority do you get to interpret God's sacred scripture? If you consider the Bible God's itinerant word, in other words, his complete unadulterated truth, what gives you the right to judge his word when he's God Almighty? You know, this is the God who's the author of space and time. He, he created you and all of humanity he knows how many hairs are on your head, how many heartbeats a moment that you're having, all the cells in your body that you were checking out the hot secretary with the tight blouse and uh, the low-cut blouse with the, the breast implants that when you were five years old, you played doctor with your neighbor. He knows, he knows everything from beginning to end but you're going to arrogate for yourself the authority to interpret his holy word. Which you, you know, if you're being sincere, you say, yeah, the, the Bible is God's word. Well, if you honestly believe that, who gave you the authority to interpret it for yourself? I mean, if you're even remotely humble, you wouldn't claim that. You would not claim that because he's God and you are you. Let me give you an example. Let's just say you're, you're, you're Joe College Boy. You got your four-year degree in whatever your specialty was. Um, you married your college sweetheart. You have a couple kids. You go to your 60, 40 to 60-hour week job and... You know, you're raising your family and you're going about your day-to-day -day existence. But yet, you're going to put yourself in a position to judge God's holy word? Um, I think that's kind of presumptuous myself. That's my opinion, but we live in the era of, you know... Um, of uh, moral relativism, you know, you may think I'm a grumpy old man. You're welcome to that opinion. I find it presumptuous. And faith alone, it makes a hash out of traditional morality. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. If I read the Old Testament and I read about how Guys like Isaac and um, Joseph and uh, Solomon and David had multiple wives. And I take that as, 
as, as saying, well, polygamy is okay. If, if David and Solomon and Isaac can do it, why can't I? Well, and by the way, <laughs> about polygamy, that's exactly what Joseph Smith, Smith taught. And it didn't become illegal for Mormons to have multiple wives officially, officially, until the state of Utah applied to be a state to the U.S. government. And basically the government said, yeah, you're going to have to quash that polygamy crap. And so they, on paper, put it on the books that polygamy was illegal. Well, those of you that watch uh, Brothers, Sisters, or whatever that trash show is on A&E about the traditionalist Mormons, there are pockets in Utah where that's still going on and not a peep has been said. Now, my point in bringing this up is if that's my private interpretation of scripture and you believe in faith alone and I think it's okay to have multiple wives or multiple husbands, if you honestly believe in faith alone as a principle, then you have to say, as the famous imposter Pope said, who am I to judge? Because ultimately, there's no higher authority to say, outside the government, to say, well, no, you can't do this. This, you know, this is highly illegal. You know, there's just no one outside there to tell you that. And if you honestly believe in scripture alone and private interpretation and, and faith alone, if you're being honest to your principles, you got to say, hey, you know, he, it's his interpretation. He's free to that. And that's why I say it's hypocritical because there are plenty of uh, what they call themselves are traditional Protestants who think that the Mormons are heretics and that their polygamy is part of their heresy. Um, but like I said, it's hypocrisy because if they were following the Protestant theology to the letter, they would just say, well, it's just another branch of Protestantism, you know. We don't really approve, but, you know, they're just honestly following their consciences. And one of the most divisive examples of the air of faith alone is this, this, uh, I don't even know what to call this except the heresy. But basically, you say the Jesus prayer and you automatically get into heaven. I'm not saying with 40,000 40, denominations that it's every Protestant sect. But there are a lot of Protestant sects that say, hey, just say the Jesus prayer. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Can I get to heaven? And that's it. You're in heaven. And basically, the, the, the upshot of this, of this teaching is, is there's no working to please Jesus, no work to become like Jesus, and no reform of your life. Just a prayer, 
and you get to heaven. But I've noticed, especially, you know, recently, that this this particular uh, heresy, you know, a lot of people subscribe to it. And a lot of it has to do with the heresy of predestination. Predestination is this whole own topic. I want this, is this, this, uh, these episodes are running into about three hours. Also, also I'm going to say on predestination is I will get to that particular heresy in a later episode. Um, okay, guys, you know what? I really appreciate you hanging, um, this long. I'm afraid that I'm going to have to cut another 30 minute segment and hopefully that'll cover the rest of this episode. So I, I ask for your patience and your understanding Um, thank you for listening. Um, I'm going to do the second part here in a minute. Okay. Where I last left off guys was, um, I was going to get into the Protestant founders. Now, when I say the Protestant founders, I'm talking about the original, um, quote-unquote Protestant reformers, Luther, Henry VIII, and Calvin, and the various sundry of the other guys that were involved in this. This is not, and I repeat, this is not an indictment against Protestants in general, just the ones who revolted from the Catholic Church in the 16th century. So, The Protestant founders were thieves, robbers, and murderers. And with the backing of their patron princes, king in the case of Henry VIII, they destroyed Catholic churches and monasteries, looted churches and monasteries. And when I say looted, they took everything that was made of gold or silver or silk, um, whatever money was inside the church, And they either kept it for themselves or they gave it to their followers. You know, in the case of Henry VIII, you know, um, well, I'll get to him in a minute. They also gave Catholic properties, rightful Catholic properties, to their followers. That's the part I was going to get to with Henry VIII. Henry VIII... Basic, well, it wasn't just Henry VIII either. It was also Luther. Would would uh, confiscate Catholic property and then they would give it to their, you know, to their minions who did their bidding. Uh, in the case of Henry VIII, he would take a Catholic property and if there was a duke or a earl that he liked, at that particular time, he would give them the property to do with what they wished. In the case of Luther, 
Luther really didn't have the authority to be giving away Catholic property, but the prince he served under did. And the prince that he served under would do the same thing as that Henry VIII did and to basically take confiscated Catholic property and give it to his, you know, his loyal barons and uh, knights, you know. Well, you did good. I'm going to give you this Catholic property. They smashed the statues of saints and stained glass windows in churches. Now, as far as stained glass windows go, being Protestant, you might not be aware of, but if you see churches, Gothic cathedrals that are still standing, the few that are still standing, they have beautiful stained glass windows. And basically the reason that the Catholic Church put stained glass windows into their churches was because the majority of the people in the 13th and 14th um, and, and the, uh, yeah, the 13th and the 14th centuries, these, these windows were, were basically pictures of stories in the Bible. And this, this, this was dumb because these guys, A, didn't have a Bible to read and B, were illiterate. So even if they did have a Bible, they couldn't read it. So they put them in the churches so that, so that when the priest gave his three scriptural readings, that was part of the Catholic Church, the, the, and then he gave what is known as um, a homily, which is basically, in Protestant terms, his sermon, they could look at the stained glass windows and they could look at the pictures that were on them and say, oh, yeah, uh, uh, Father so-and-so taught about this scripture in, in one of his sermons or uh, one of his readings. So it, it gave them, you know, uh, something to, it was, it was still a teaching tool is what I'm trying to say. And by the way, there are still stained glass makers to this day. And the modern stained glass makers they they make some beautiful stained glass. I have nothing but praise, at least the ones I've come across. And, you know, when trolling the internet. Anyway, they raped nuns and killed priests and laymen who resisted their, their onslaught. Now, um... Okay, I want to make it clear. What I'm saying here is not Catholic propaganda. This is historical fact. And if, you're, if you want to make the claim that this is Catholic propaganda, I don't know how many of you have heard of the professor named Rodney Stark. That guy is a Protestant, but he's an honest Protestant. And he airs all the dirty laundry that the Protestants have committed against the Catholic Church for the past 500 years. Okay? So, 
if you think what I'm telling you is Catholic propaganda, this is one of your own guys saying, yeah, Protestants were pretty atrocious and here's what they did. But if you still want to ignore or deny these facts, that's between you and God. Now, I know that there's, uh, this has been a thing since at least the 90s. The non-denominational churches. And you can say, well, we're not Protestant because we, you know, we don't, we, we're not Lutherans, we're not Anglicans, we're not Baptists, we're, you know, we're just non-denominational. Well, you're still Protestant because you're using Protestant theology as, as your baseline. And there, I knew, I knew a Mormon uh, a few years ago, and he used to say, well, my church is neither Protestant nor Catholic. It's a new religion. And I used to tell him that if you weren't a part of the Catholic church, you were Protestant. That was it. And the poor kid didn't even know that most Protestant churches considered Mormons to be heretics. And rightfully so, I might add, just for the wrong reasons. But I love the way, you know, especially Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons run around saying they're a new religion. Well, guess what? When Luther introduced it, introduced Lutheranism and Calvin introduced Calvinism, they both claimed that they were new religions. Okay? They didn't, you know, they didn't claim, oh, we're really a knockoff of the Catholic Church. We're a discount Catholic Church. No, they, they claimed, and you can read their writings, no, this is a new religion, a new teaching. The Lutherans, Anglicans, and Calvinists have stolen Catholic churches. That's an undeniable fact. Um, in the territories where Protestantism was the, the, the main, main religion, they used to, um, take former Catholic churches and they would smash the statues and they would whitewash the walls and they would break the stained glass windows and basically turn those churches into utilitarian, um, bare and minimalist places of what they consider worship. Um, they basically, they basically took the beauty out of the former Catholic churches. They have upsurped the, they have upsurped the term Christian and lyingly claim to be the first church. They make erroneous claims at best and malicious lies at worst about the Catholic history. And like I said, 
Uh, this is not a condemnation of Protestants in, in present-day United States. This is a condemnation of the Protestant quote-unquote reformers and the teachers who spout these falsehoods, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And some do it knowingly. They know what they're saying is lies. But it suits their purposes to, to, to spout falsehoods against the Catholic Church. One of the biggest tropes I've heard hurled at Catholics is, well, the popes and bishops and priests live in mansions while the followers starve. Okay, let me take the whole Catholic thing first. And then I'm going to point out a little something about Protestants, which is probably going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. But the truth is the truth. You got to follow the truth wherever it leads you. This whole thing, like, okay, the popes live in the Vatican, okay? The Vatican is built on land donated to it by the Emperor Constantine, when he decided to uh, recognize Christianity as a legal religion. That was one of the gifts that he made the Catholic Church. And, you know, I've heard of all about the, you know, quote-unquote donation of Constantine was, was, was a lie invented by Catholics. Um, that's... That's what they call um, a conspiracy theory. There's no evidence proving that, that uh, Constantine did not um, donate the land that the Vatican II was built on to the Catholic Church. There's no solid evidence. It's lies and uh, misinformation. And uh, as uh, our, our ex-president Trump used to say, that's fake news. Now, as far as the bishops go, there are some Vatican II um, bishops who live in mansions. There are. But I've done, I've, I've looked into it, and as near as I can tell, and by the way, before I get into as near as I can tell, I just want to tell you, these, these Vatican II bishops... Uh, are not are not true Catholics. They're Protestants masquerading as Catholics. Anyway, the mansions that some of the not all of the bishops, but some, because I've seen the pictures of these mansions, um, they're they're outrageously ostentatious. They are outrageously ostentatious. But as near as I can tell. They didn't use Vatican II funds to pay for these mansions. What, as near as I can tell, or my understanding is, is that these some of these bishops have uh, made cut corrupt deals with third parties for unknown services to pay for these mansions that they live in. But as near as I can tell, the Vatican II Church has not paid for those mansions. 
And as far as the priests go, they do not live in mansions. Having been a former Vatican II uh, member, I can assure you, I've been to two priests. Uh, they're not even houses, but basically they're dormitories located on the grounds of the church. And these dormitories were built with the church by the parishioners making donations, for, uh, as the Protestants would say, free will donations, so that the priests, you know, could live on the grounds with the church. You know, the priest and the Catholic church didn't put a gun to these uh, parishioners' heads and say, build us, build us a, a, a house for our priests or we're going to, you know, we're going to sick whatever authorities on you. No, no. I, like I said, I've been to two of these residences. One of the residents was a little tiny house located outside of the church on the church grounds that housed at least three priests. The other, uh, it wasn't even a house. It was a outbuilding located off the church that you could get to, um, you know, through another entrance that basically housed maybe one or two priests and the, the, the living quarters in both places were Spartan because I will remind you that priests take a vow and bishops, because they're priests, and the Pope, take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Meaning, they're not allowed to, to make a fortune being a priest. They're not allowed to. Um, they're given, you know, they got a housing, or I'm sorry, they get, uh, they get a car, if they're Vatican II, if they're true Catholic priests, they have to buy their own car and they get a food allowance. And if they're really blessed, one of the lady parishioners will come in like maybe once or twice a week to clean the place. But other than that, you're not going to get rich being a priest, a bishop, or even the Pope for that matter. Now, I know there's some Protestants who are going to say, well, what about Pope so-and-so? Oh, what about Bishop so-and-so? These guys had orgies. These guys uh, uh, made their sons uh, bishops. And look, you know, I'm an honest Catholic. I'm not going to deny that there weren't abuses of the church, in the church. But the Catholic church as a whole the whole reason that the Council of Trent was called to, was to reform those abuses. Okay, it didn't sit idly by and allow these, these, uh, these corrupt popes and bishops and priests to plunder the uh, laity willy-nilly, you know. Um, but I'm not going to deny that there weren't abuses in the church 
Which brings me to my second point. Um, as far as the Protestant church, uh, churches in America go, you're probably too young to remember the 1970s and the advent of the televangelist. In about 1979, you got to remember at this time, I was a heathen. I knew nothing about Christianity. Um, I lived with a Baptist pastor who was my foster father. He literally busted his hump in an auto body shop for 50 or 60 hours a week, including Saturdays, to support his family, which consisted of his wife and his three children and me. Every Sunday, he would preach to his congregation of about 15 people in a small ramshackle church. One Sunday before services, Robert Schuler came on for his broadcast in his Crystal Cathedral. This was on TV. And those of you Protestants of a certain age will know who Robert Schuler is. For those of you too young to remember, he was one of the first televangelists. And on his TV program, it would show, it would have shots from the outside of his church. His church was literally the size of a small to medium-sized Catholic cathedral. And it was made of all glass. And they would do shots from the inside. And inside this cathedral, there had to be at least 500 to 1,000 people inside this cathedral. And he was asking for donations. Now, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Not by any stretch of the imagination. But even at 11 or 12, I was thinking to myself, this guy has a huge congregation. There has to be at least five to ten wealthy people going to his church. Why can't he um, talk to these wealthy um, churchgoers and ask them to, to help donate to, for the upkeep of this huge cathedral? And furthermore... He has between 500 to 1,000 people in his church. Why can't he make use of what's in the collection basket? And believe me, I've been in enough churches to know they have baskets. <laughs> they have baskets. And I told my, fo uh, my foster dad, I, I, I told him, I thought this was wrong. This just didn't seem right. And he looked at me in the eye, and he said, we're all doing God's work. To this day, I like and respect this man. There's not many people that I can say I truly respect, but this man was one of them. Unfortunately, at the time, I was too young to appreciate what a great example he was setting for me 
Um, I didn't realize that till later on in life. But I thank God that he put him in my life because this man literally set the perfect example of integrity and honesty and faith. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, being a Protestant is the correct faith, but he was living his faith as honestly as he could to the best of his understanding. And, you know, I'll give anyone props, even if they're mistaken, if they're doing what they think is right. Okay, so we're looking at... I'm very, very sorry. We're going to have to go into part three, but part three should be the end. So I want to thank you for sticking with me and being patient. And I just, if you find what I'm saying, um, if you find what I'm saying uh, beneficial to you, I, I just want to ask for your patience and your... Um, and your understanding and just stay with me for part three. And I promise this should be the last, the last part of this episode. So thank you guys. And I'll talk to you in a bit.